Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. The statue appeared in 2011 on the path of my daily commute to the University of Florida, where I was a student. It was a statue of a football player named Tim Tebow. And the strange thing about it was that Tim Tebow was still around. In fact, it was just a few months after he graduated, and it was commemorating events like touchdowns that I remembered seeing. I remembered seeing him around campus, and now I was looking at him as a statue. But it wasn't just a statue. Behind the statue was the entrance to a hall of honor, which featured football trophies. But the space was not just a room with trophies. It was a story about the football program where trophies were an inevitable consequence. In short, it looked like a museum. Reader rails and old pictures of the early days of the program were presented alongside pigskin footballs from the 1930s with good lighting. But this wasn't just one university. All across the football conference, these trophy rooms looked like museum spaces. At Florida State University, just a few hours away, the trophy room begins with artifacts from and descriptions of the Seminole Nation, even though these are tellingly light on the details. The point was to tie the athletic program's success with that of historical figures fighting a U.S. invasion. It's all done very deftly. One minute you're looking at a map of what is now Florida drawn by a U.S. general, and the next you're looking at a tattered football jersey. The next, a bronze statue of the story's heroes. There's a bridge between statues and museums. They feed into each other. So why do athletic programs adopt statues and museum-like spaces? Because they want to sell us a selective account presented as a neutral archive of the past. Last week in Bristol's The Center, Black Lives Matter UK protesters tore down a statue of Edward Colston, a prominent 17th century slave trader. Protesters rolled the statue through the street and pushed it into Bristol Harbor. The same harbor that Colston's Royal African Company ships that forcibly carried 80,000 people from Africa to the Americas used to dock. Before it was thrown into the harbor, the statue of Colston had been standing in the center of town since 1895. And it wasn't as if the source of Colston's wealth was just discovered last week. The idea of, like, how do we make visible, for instance, the enslaved people who are invisible at all of these sites of memory that were about white supremacy when they were created, and now they still are, but we don't talk about that, right? Like, how do we make that visible? You know, that's something that I've been been playing around with for a long time. This is Dr. Lyra Montero, professor of history at Rutgers University, Newark, and co-founder of the Museum on Site and creator of Washington's Next. In her interview for episode 77 of this show, she explains and answers one of the arguments against taking down white supremacist statues in the context of the United States. The slippery slope argument. And the people who make this argument tend not to be the ones who are like overtly gung-ho and like, you know, it's our it's our Southern heritage to honor Robert E. Lee. It's not those folks, right? It's more the people who are historians, sometimes art historians, sometimes like museum folks. Uh, The argument that they make is that, well, yes, it's not good that there is a statue to Robert E. Lee. But the thing is, if we take him down, and obviously using him to stand up for all the Confederate statues, if we take him down, well, then where are we going to stop? Because 
if the reason why he's not appropriate for us to honor in public space is because of slavery, well, there are other slave owners that we honor in public space. And of course, the biggest ones there are George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And of course, there's no way in hell we're going to get rid of those statues, right? What, we're going to take down the Washington Monument? I don't think so, you know? So the idea is it's a slippery slope that we're starting to tumble down the minute that we start taking down the statues of people who supported and promoted slavery. Montero's answer to the slippery slope argument is yes. Washington's next. The tone of voice in which I I hear the slippery slope argument from scholars and from museum practitioners and from, you know, public parks (laughs) officials is less one of like panic and concern about attacking that legacy and much more one of, well, that's just silly. Obviously, we wouldn't do that. Dr. Sadia Qureshi, senior lecturer in modern history at the University of Birmingham, writes in Flux, Perry and Unpacked about toppling statues. Critics accused protesters of wanting to rewrite history, yet fail to engage with what is really at stake, namely identifying, acknowledging, and removing endemic structural problems of racism in reparative form. A suggestion offered by more than a few people is museums. Why not put the statues of problematic people in museums? Is the bottom of the harbor really the right place for a statue of Colston? Of course, these questions tend to ignore that the bottom of the ocean is the final resting place for hundreds of actual people thrown overboard from Colston's ships because they were deemed a poor investment for Colston's company. On Museum Archipelago, we've investigated what various Eastern European countries are doing with old statues of dictators like Lenin and Stalin. Monica Bernotis, interviewed on episode five of this show, describes how her family's native Lithuania removed its ubiquitous Soviet statues from city squares all across the country. The removals were events that helped build the young nation. But once the statues were removed from their original locations, no one knew quite what to do with them. Many of them ended up at something called Goethe's Park, a kind of half-theme park that includes a massive statue garden. The statues are presented simply and somewhat randomly. Each has a little description of the city and square where the statue used to stand. Many Lithuanians and the Lithuanian government have criticized the uncritical approach to the park's layout. Visitors are free to do whatever they want. But I guess like once you get into the actual statue walk, it's kind of funny because you can do whatever you want. So like... Climbing on top of Lenin and Stalin, picking their nose, patting them on the head, doing whatever you want. But I like to think that I have some sort of connection, some sort of understanding that these images might have been both scary and inspirational at different times in somebody's life. For me, they've always been images that were bad. Like, no, like, I feel like growing up, I always knew that Lenin's face, Stalin's face, like, these were the faces of terror that drove my grandparents out of Lithuania. But be able to interact with them on this very, like, humorous level is really interesting. The situation at Bulgaria's Museum of Socialist Art in Sofia is somewhat similar. The outdoor sculpture garden is littered with statues commemorating Soviet power, placed wherever there is room. I visited many times, and I'm never quite sure how to react. There's a lot of power in deliberately taking these statues out of the context they were made for. What once may have been an imposing statue, underscoring who's in charge in a public square, is now gesticulating impotently at a rose bush. 
In Eastern Europe, the statues of Lenin and Stalin and others were erected during the communist times and were swiftly removed when the system fell. In the West, statues erected more than 100 years ago still stand without context. Washington's next because the money he made from owning, working, and selling people isn't a footnote. It's the reason he was the first president. Even at the Museums of Bristol website, Colston is identified as a revered philanthropist slash reviled slave trader, in that order, as if the money he gave away to the city of Bristol wasn't violently extracted from the people he enslaved. It's not a sufficient answer to simply put these statues in a museum. I don't know if there's enough museum space for all the Confederate monuments in the American South, or enough museum space for all the statues of King Leopold in Belgium. But more importantly, the political exercise in selective remembrance, neatly packaged as an unbiased archive that statues represent, is the same exercise that museums represent. Museums and statues are bridged together. Many of these statues are right in front of museum entrances, priming the visitor for what they can expect to find inside. Statues and museums share a centuries-long history of supporting white supremacist, colonialist, racist ideologies, helping them flourish, providing the evidence for them, and undergirding them through their placement, through their air of authority, and through their supposed neutrality. The statues of American football players at American universities helps me think about this, because the stakes are so low. The rivalry is so clear. Our football team has heroes and a long legacy. And it's telling that the two tools that were employed to make that point are statues and museums. This has been Museum Archipelago. If you haven't checked out Club Archipelago, now is a great time. My favorite episode of our museum movie review series, Archipelago at the Movies, is now completely free. Join Rebecca Reibstein and I as we break down 2004's National Treasure, discussing the tropes of museum films and how museum exhibit design is reflected back through popular culture. To listen for free and hopefully find a little distraction, go to patreon.com slash museumarchipelago and look for the episode on National Treasure. You can find a full transcript of this episode and links to other episodes at museumarchipelago.com. Museum Archipelago is supported by listeners like you who have joined Club Archipelago on Patreon. If you can't get enough about how museums shape our lives, join now for $2 a month. If this is your first episode, subscribe to the show for free using your favorite podcast player. And if it isn't, leave us a rating or review. And next time, bring a friend.